Welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Do you hear Do you hear that in the distance, Lauren? What? Wait, what? The, the faint, the faint oh, sound I... of bagpipes? Oh, I, I do. Not to be um, stereotypical at all, but I think I do hear the, the gentle whine of uh, bladder and pipes from way across the pond. And is that <laughs> a, a deep fried Mars bar? I, smell? <laughs> I thought you were going to say something about the Heath or something. <laughs> ah, yes. Ah, the, the bogs the heath. and the mm. Heath. The Heath. Uh, no, definitely deep fried Mars bar is way more Scottish than the Heath, I would say. Um, but today we have a very special guest. We are very excited. Old hat. Everybody knows him. Everybody loves him. We've got Addie Lewis on the show today. Addie, welcome. I know it's very late where you are. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's fantastic to be here. Yeah. As we were recording this, it's about 11 o'clock at night, but I'm a night owl anyway. And Great. yeah, all good. Happy to be here. We are so happy to have you. And uh, not that long ago, Eddie reached out to us with a great pitch for a topic for the show, something that we had not considered ourselves to do. So, I mean, yeah, we uh, we know nothing about this. So you don't hear many this. exclamations of what? Wow. <laughs> like just prepping your ears for this. For yeah, this, yeah. Guys. So get ready for a lot of interruptions from yours truly. Addie, <laughs> what will you be talking about today? I will be talking about, um, well, if you know me online, then you may know that my handle online is the Quizzing Ronin. Um, and that term comes, the term Ronin relates to the samurai of uh, medieval Japan. So I will be talking about the samurai, uh, specifically a period in the late 16th century uh, in which three people came together after 150 years of civil war and united the country into one, which led to um, the, essentially the latter half of the last millennium. Cool. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. I'm so excited to learn about it. So, just before I start with this, there are a couple of disclaimers I like to make uh, about the history about the history of samurai. But well, first of all, um, I am not Japanese. I'm talking about Japanese history. I use a, an online handle which reflects Japanese history, but I'm to be clear, I am not meaning to culturally appropriate in any way. I'm not meaning to speak on behalf of or for uh, Japanese people. I do not claim any descent from. I'm not claiming to represent mm. anyone. I am simply an amateur enthusiast in history who knows a bit about the subject and is looking to enlighten you, the listeners. Um, I am not claiming to be or represent the samurai. Um, another thing is pronunciation. I don't actually speak Japanese. I will try my best with the pronunciation, but please bear with me the fact that realistically i am unlikely to get there's there's likely to be a fair bit of butchery so please bear with me on that people are used um, to us butchering things all the time yeah it's always so. men with the best of intentions we're <laughs> just trying our best but sometimes polish words have too many consonants in them okay Japanese is a complicated language it is. and mm -hmm. although it can certainly be realistically i'm not for the purpose of this podcast i'm not going to obsess over getting every word right mm-hmm and the other thing I'd like to say is that Japanese his samurai history is very fraught and very 
questionable at times. The records are inconsistent or outright missing. With any military history, history is written by the winners. The right, exactly. dates of the losers and the dead tend to be expunged or mm-hmm. or written. There's things are changing all the time, you know, as archaeological evidence is uncovered. I'm I've done my best to research everything I'm saying and to be as accurate as possible. I cannot one hundred percent guarantee that everything I say is one hundred percent absolutely bang on. Just want to claim I am not claiming to be speaking the gospel. Yeah, and it's it seems like from what you've said, you've told us that this is already like you said, the winners are the ones who write the history. So it's it's complicated regardless of if you're an expert on samurai or not, because it seems like there there's some um, inaccuracies in the historical record because of this. Exactly. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I don't really know how much you know about the samurai. Uh, I'm going to essentially mostly cover a period roughly between about 1550 and 1600. Mm. Uh, but I'm going to very briefly just uh, explain just how we kind of got to that point um, and who the samurai were. Um, so this is a very quick version of about 1500 years roughly of um, Japanese history. Um, the first peoples who came to Japan and sort of lived a settled non-nomadic lifestyle um they settled in the southern part of the Jap- of the main japanese archipelago four main japanese islands uh kyushu shikoku hokkaido and honshu hokkaido's one the far north and so the rest so it was the ever more southern ones that were that people were settling in mm-hmm. uh there were however people there who, who were there formerly who had um as part of an earlier human diaspora had had moved into the islands and not all of them particularly wanted to be a part of this royal aristocracy that developed over the course of of, um, a few centuries. It was very much inspired by uh, early Chinese and uh, Korean dynasties, uh, these people. So what happened is that because these these climates were warmer, up north um, in Japan is actually quite close to Siberia and Russia, it's, it gets very cold up there. So not as many people want to live up there. So the people who didn't particularly want to stay and want to be as part of a settled agricultural uh, lifestyle, they find themselves moved up north to some extent voluntarily, to some extent not. And so what you actually had was a situation that was very similar to the American Wild West, Oh, okay. um, because when Europeans came over to America, because of course what you find is that a lot of them settled on the eastern coast. You've got a mm-hmm. lot of big cities and settlements in today on the eastern coast, and then their influence was expanded out west. You know, roughly speaking. Whereas, so a similar thing happened in Japan, but the, the conquest was south to north. Okay. As these people in in the south decided they wanted their own, they wanted to expand their lands and their territories. But these rich aristocrats sitting on, you know, in their lovely palaces down in the capital, Kyoto, didn't particularly want to leave those lands to go up and to uh, fight people who they saw as less advanced. They saw as, mm. quote unquote, barbarians. OK, mm. so they sent uh, the they sent less what they would see as lesser people up there, lower members of the aristocracy and peasants essentially to go up and. Uh, and fight those people and take over those lands. Um, the people they were fighting were called the Imishi. And the people who were sent up in that direction to do that fighting were referred to as, they were co- considered servants 
okay. they were considered samurai. So samurai actually means to means to serve. That's oh. actually where the word comes from. So it wasn't essentially it was a slur. It wasn't <gasps> something you'd want to be careful for because these are you know we're the people in Kyoto in our posh palaces. We rule. You're samurai. You serve. Oh. Interesting. So, I had I had no idea. I had no yeah, idea. So that's where that came from. And samurai. So and the word as Japanese society developed a sort of caste system, hierarchical caste system sort of developed, mm-hmm. and the samurai took over the the role of the warrior caste. So they became known became the warriors, um, but a lot of them were, were still relatively high up as warriors went because you know these would be lesser sons or you know that's a sort of a tier of ranks and the nobility developed it would okay. be you know the highest ranks would be in the palaces and then lower and then the further down you go the further away you get from the capital until you're in you're further up north mm-hmm. um the problem is with this sort of situation so eventually you know the lands were conquered and japan essentially became large more or less one nation the problem is though that in order to incentivize people to go up north and fight all these people, you've got to give them something. And because yeah. they didn't want these servants anywhere near them, they said, well, you know what? You can have your lands up north. You can have the lands up north because that's cold and we don't want to go there. <laughs> um, but the problem with that is after a certain point, you think, well, if we're, if we've conquered all it, we've taken all this land, we've, you know, we've made, we've earned this. Mm-hmm. Why are we actually listening to those people down south? <laughs> what are they actually doing for us? Yeah. And and also the people who are working for so you've got lesser lords who are kind of organizing these campaigns. Mm. Uh, but the people under them also want to be paid. So the so the, the lesser lords ask the higher ones, well, you know, could you give something to my men? And they say, No, what do I care about some peasants? So what the more pragmatic lord lesser these lesser lords do is they give something out of their own land to their own workers. So they say, well, you know, I've got this big chunk of land, but I'll give you something and you can raise a farm on it. Now, that has the now that has what that means is that their own workers, their own soldiers. When, it, when you ask who they're loyal to, people are loyal to people who pay the bills. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and so so if the guy. So if you're saying, well, I want a place, I want a home, I want some land. And someone down south is saying no, but someone close to you is saying, well, yeah, here you go. That's the guy you're going to be loyal to. Mm, exactly. So when the guy right. down south said, you know what, fight for me, do this, do that, you're going to say, no, I'll fight for the guy who actually pays my bills, who's actually given me something. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. in doing so, so that so that meant that essentially the power transitioned from outwards away from Kyoto. And so of all that, there an emperor. There was there was an emperor. There was you know a man who was said to be you know divine, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And he was technically in charge, but in reality, his his power was very much figurehead. Yeah. Um, and the person in charge, the person militarily in charge of these campaigns, was known as the shogun. But in time, oh. the shogun type. So, so that was known as the shogun. Now, what happened is eventually the samurai families actually invaded Kyoto down in the south and basically just outright took it over. Um, and so they basically, so. The, so it was like a rebellion, kind of. Yeah, the colours of the Japanese flag. So basically, the samurai families, because they've done all the work and they've they've got all the practical power, so they end up saying, "Well, we're just going to be in charge overall," and establish essentially a military dictatorship. So the colours of the Japanese flag, red and white, reflect the two main clans who did this: the Minamoto and the Taira. And you know, the one did it, one took over, and then didn't last too long. The other one took over. So clan, um, so. 
that was so they fought so they formed essentially the, the main military dictatorship but then a lot of the other even though they had they had the central control the outlying lords still had a lot of a lot of power there was mm-hmm. only so much control that the local lords uh that the central lords could actually exert and so those mm-hmm. local provincial lords were called daimyo even so of all the t- the title of shogun was established as a military dictatorship uh and the old ways were essentially were essentially abolished they, the the emperor was still maintained as a symbol but really nothing more uh but even the shoguns themselves um increasingly had little power so this is all happening about the sort of um 11th century so 10 okay. okay. um is when the the uh, kamakura shogunate is established um the first shogunate was essentially overthrown by betrayal uh mm-hmm. the ashikaga someone an uh someone from the ashikaga family was sent to do to assist and ended up stabbing his employer in the back and setting up his own shogunate uh was not particularly well liked um but so their but their family lasted a couple of centuries but over the course of the the 1400s the 15th century power was was becoming increasingly decentralized. Daimyos were controlling their provinces and they were sort of fighting with each other and they mm-hmm. were and there wasn't a lot that they could do down in Kyoto or down in the central areas because you've got people who've got large private armies and they've you know they've taken territory from each other, they've mm-hmm. offered incentives to their own people and said, you know, come here and you'll and fight for me, etc. So mm. it's it's very difficult for anyone um down there to to really do anything but things really came to a head in 1467 which was the start of what's known as the sengoku period uh, japanese history is divided into periods which is mm-hmm. a, a complex mm-hmm. system the mm-hmm. but this is not the thing but this is what i'm really talking about it's the it's known as the, it's the warring states period now sengoku doesn't exactly translate into english you often hear it as things like sort of country well, warring states is one translation but but that is essentially a reference to there's a warring states period in china between different dynasties okay mm. it's not really strictly accurate for japan because in japan although this is essentially a 150 year long civil war it mm. was a civil war in that everyone theoretically said you know what we support the emperor okay. no one was really claiming not to part the same country whereas in china it was completely different dynasties fighting mm-hmm. against each other mm-hmm. here it's more it's more like if say the 50 u.s states you know, everyone's theoretically loyal to the president, but, you know, and to their idea of what the USA should be. But in practice, they want to be the ones actually in control. They want to control mm-hmm. the presidency itself. They don't necessarily disagree with the idea of the presidency. I see. OK. Like so it's Texas. Just a matter- yeah, like yeah. Texas. There's yes, perfect. Uh, so. <laughs> Sorry to everybody in Texas, but, no, you know, no, it's well, true. They know it's true. Come on. So in 1467, there was a conflict over uh, who over the succession to one of the to the shogun. Mm. Uh, one of the shoguns had died, and he had no heir. So and it was like a like a uh, yes lineage. Pass, yeah, it, passing yes, it, it down. The shogun the was hereditary. Yeah. The shogun, okay. the shogun was hereditary. Um, mm. Was hereditary in that family. Um, but in this case, the shogun had died without an heir. And multiple factions are, end up decide, end up supporting 
different potential heirs. And that led to what to the um, the ten year Onan War. And the result of that was essentially was that uh, Kyoto essentially ended up being burnt to the ground repeatedly. Oh, wow. uh, both sides were both sides were utterly militarily exhausted and they were mm-hmm. basically done for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the shogunate lost all, all central control completely disappeared. Wow. So even the kind of, the pretense had been over the last couple of hundred years fell apart completely. There was no central government. Wow. The Jeez. only control, well, the, 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 the emperor still existed, but he could do mm-hmm. nothing. Yeah. And there was no, and there was technically a shogun, he had no, he, even his pretend power didn't exist. Uh, so all the clans started ruling, started warring with each other, and th- so, and this went on on and off for. We we're talking now a hundred years without really any any real resolution. Oh my so gosh! Entire generations are rising and falling, and provinces are changing hands. You know, it's all there's always back and forth, and there's no decisive outcome because there's so many factions involved. Yeah, yeah. So, core of what I'm really going to talk about is the end of this, which is so it, which is the last 40 or 50 years of this conflict in which three men, one after the other, of all were around at the same time, managed to end the conflict and unite Japan under a single banner at last, which is quite a, a monumental achievement given the scale of this. I mean, this was an entire fairly large country completely at war. And this, mm-hmm. in, you know, and this in, this encapsulated the entire country mm. you know you were all there was no part of you really that was untouched yeah um so the, the the difference between the three men is summed up often in a, a poem that, that children learn at school uh which involves an analogy of a cuckoo or, or a, a mockingbird mm. uh, in which the three men are in turn given a mockingbird that won't sing one of them waits for it to sing one of them makes it sing and the other kills it because wow. if it can't sing then it's a useless thing and should Die. That's the difference between the three had very different mindsets. Mm. It feels um, like something from Taskmaster. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten very into that show in the last couple of weeks. By the way. It, it is very much. It's kind of. I mean, game. It's like kind of like Game of Thrones in the way that mm-hmm. Game of Thrones was. I mean, Game of Thrones is very heavily inspired by a lot of real world history, a lot, particularly mm-hmm. a lot of British history, things sure, like yeah. like the Red Wedding in, in Game of Thrones. That actually happened about twenty miles from me. Oof. Recently? Uh, <laughs> Jesus. No. <laughs> Wasn't to the same extent either, but anyway. So this, yeah. Um, so these three men who I'm going to talk, I'll talk about them roughly in turn, but there is a bit of overlap because I don't know if they were ever were all in the same place at the same time. So they weren't like a band of three guys that were like. Combing nope. the Japanese countryside, fixing problems <laughs> with each having their own superpower. <laughs> I don't know. That's just kind of how Not I quite, pictured no. it when it's like no. one of them will wait, one of them will make him talk. <laughs> it's more like one got like one got so far, and then the other two, then the other two won the succession crisis after that and took over and finished the job. Okay, right. so they were um, not the Powerpuff Girls. That's what I'm, that's what I'm getting the at. Powerpuff Girls reference. <laughs> not the Powerpuff Girls. <laughs> Poor Addie is like, oh, <laughs> between Texas and the Powerpuff Girls, I can't teach these girls anything. <laughs> so the first of these men was Oda Nobunaga. Uh, and the Japanese 
uh, naming conventions is it's family name first and then mm-hmm. surname. So Oda was the clan name. And the other thing is, clans in Japan, it's not really what you think of like everyone's related to each other. A clan, it's more like... Like a drag house. Yeah, it's more like it's more like a faction where it's you know there is a core household, you know, and the, the key people are related to each other. But what was it more like a large company? I suppose in a sense that sure. you might have the key family members in the key positions, but the company is more than just people who are related mm-hmm, to mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, large yeah. families might you know most of the key roles might be them, but you know, but you've got retainers, you've got other people, you've got family friends, you've got sure, yeah. other people who owe you favors or have been conquered or whatever. So mm-hmm. clan. You know, I, think, it's, I think Drag House also works in this capacity, yeah, Lauren. Yeah, Drag House. Um, so the first of these, uh, these, so these are known as the three unifiers. Okay. So the first of these was Oda Nobunaga. And then Oda Nobunaga was born in 1534 in Owari province. And he was, in his early life, he was really not someone you would see as like an Alexander the Great type. Mm. Uh, but I mean, ultimately, that's what he became. He became ultimately one of these kind of one of these elite visionary military figures in history. You can, there's only been one of the sort. There's only been like a dozen or so in the whole of history: Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, Oda Nobunaga really is the Japanese equivalent of of those sorts in terms of his uh, his his sheer vision, his brutality. He did. What thing? What, what people didn't believe could be done. Mm. Um, he wasn't as successful as the others, uh, but he certainly started the ball rolling in a way that nobody would have thought really possible. Um, in his early days, he, he was born to a minor lord. The Oda clan wasn't particularly great or powerful back in its day. Oda, they, they, the Owari province is somewhere in central Japan, I think. Um, but early on, he was seen as he was known as the fool of Owari. He mm. was not seen, not taken seriously at all. Uh, he acted very erratically. At his father's funeral, he was said to have sort of thrown incense over the coffin. You know, he got he was really obnoxious to people. You know, he'd be summoned for a meeting by some higher lord, and he'd turn up wearing basically rags. You know, having just having ridden for hours on a horse. You know, he'd. Mm. He made no effort whatsoever and was just, and he had a, a temper. He was not particularly seen as a nice person and nobody took him seriously and nobody thought much of him. Mm. To a, an extent, it seems this may have been somewhat deliberate. Interesting. That considering the way he was later on, that he might, this to some extent, he might have been trying to be seen as being underestimating people. Um, but his, his actions were so much of an embarrassment that one of his family's senior retainers, uh, a man named Hirata Masahide uh, actually killed himself to send a message. What? <laughs> yeah, I don't now, know if he sent Jap- the right message. Now, Japanese society, now Japanese were very big on order and mm-hmm. ritual suicide, uh, seppuku, was a big thing in their culture. Now this mm-hmm. is essentially, it's without going into too much of the gory details, essentially it's self-disembowelment. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. You stick a knife in your gut and you draw a certain pattern for ritual reasons. Mm, I think I'm familiar. And you die yeah. painfully, but usually you'd have a second who would basically be there to cut your head off when the pain gets too much because you, you know you can only stab yourself so long. So to wait, did you say they cut their own head off? No, no, you know, somebody else would stand. Oh, somebody okay. else would do it. You'd have yeah. a second. Someone would stand. So there's it. a so t- it's a two-part you, operation. Yeah. So like okay. you stab, you know, and so you start, you do the ritual thing. And then, you know, 
once you start screaming too much, you're like, oh, I can't do this anymore. Someone else just ends it. Cuts your head off. Wow, damn. So that was it was that was seen as very honorable. Mm. Um, you know, it was consi- it was seen as better it was it was a better to, better to die than to be killed. Uh, you know, yes. To, okay. To be <sighs> to be taken alive or to be captured was seen or to fail was to be seen as shameful. And as I said, this is actually a bit of an issue that Japan has in society still today. Um, suicide rates in Japan among young men are among the highest on the planet. Mm-hmm. Wow. There is very much a sense of you know, you've got to work for your masters, for your employers, for your your family, your teachers. You know, this idea that you work yourself, you know, you you achieve what you're going to do, or you literally work yourself deaf trying. Yeah, unfortunately, mm-hmm. is an is an endemic issue. Um, so ritual suicide, or you know, if you're, if you were captured by your enemy, you know, if you were, you know, no one noble captured another noble, you might have the right of the be given the option of killing yourself in this noble ritualistic fashion mm. whereas if you were like a common brigand you'd just be hanged or whatever wow, and you're yeah. seen as a warner so mm-hmm. one of so one of Oda's retainers yes he actually literally killed himself to send the message that's how shocked he was he thought I cannot live under this man if this man's going to be uh, his father's heir wow uh, now Oda's now Nobunaga's uh, the rest of his family didn't much like the idea of him taking charge uh, so he had to, uh, of all he, so there's a bit of a succession crisis after his father died, and Nobunaga ended up ultimately winning. He ended up, uh, he had his brother killed, uh, he had a couple of his cousins um, killed, all to, to take over Owari province. But, and this was by, this all happened in the 1550s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was born in 1534, so he's in sort of his late, his late 20s going into his 30s at this point. Mm-hmm. And by about 1558, 1559s, he has control of Owari province. So he has control of his own province, but he's still not really, that's, this is only one small area of Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still nothing much about this. The big break for, the big, the biggest challenge that, that Obanaga faced next, that Nobunaga faced next, was, um, was that a very powerful clan, a much more established, reputable, and powerful clan called the Imagawa were based more or less next door. Mm. Uh, and they wanted, they decided that the time was right. You know, as this, the Daimyo did every now and again, they'll say, that, you know what, my time's right, I'm going to try and conquer the whole country. Nobody sure. wasn't exactly the first to try this. He was just, he just did better than most. <laughs> but the, the Imagawa decided they were going to go through, they had to go through Owari mm-hmm. to get to Kyoto. Considering that, that Nobunaga's army was about a tenth of the size of the Imagawa's and he was considered a complete loser, this wasn't seen as an issue. Mm. Right. However, nowadays it is the it is the Imagawa clan head Yoshimoto who is the one who is seen as a fool. In video games, he is actually seen his weapon in video games. There's various video games in which you can play as these lords, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. his weapon tends to be essentially the equivalent, the Japanese equivalent of a hockey stick. He's not <laughs> even sure as having a real weapon. Mm. And this is because of because of the. Battle of Okihazama, which was in 1560. Now, basically, so the the Imagawa forces were charging Fort Owari, taking out the minor fortresses or whatever. And basically, Nobunaga had basically three choices. His men said that you know either stay in, stay and hole up and fight to the death, you know, as nor as would have been traditionally done. Mm-hmm. You can surrender, just hope for mercy, which you're not going to get, which basically means all be told to kill yourselves. Um, well, Nobunaga decided to attack. He decided to attack essentially an army of 25,000 men with about 2,000. 
What? He did, he Nobunaga realized that the key to the Imagawa army was Yoshimoto himself. Cut the head off the snake, mm. and the rest of the army would have a few problems. Yeah. So he took advantage. No, it was a it was a combination of ingenuity, luck, and skill. He took. Oh, the Imagawa forces were quite scattered. He wasn't actually fighting about twenty five thousand men at the time. It was more like about five thousand men because his, his armies were scattered. Mm-hmm. His armies were also drunk, and they were celebrating the recent victories. You know, they were they were literally drunk on victory. So they were mm-hmm. having a party near the village of Okihazama, and there was a mass. I believe there was a massive thunderstorm as well. This is monsoon season, which meant that a, a, a few hundred Oda men sneaking into the camp weren't really seen. Oh, okay. So they managed to sneak into the camp and they started causing trouble and they started killing high-ranking targets. Imagawa, Yoshimoto himself, actually, at first, when the fighting started, didn't come out of his tent. He thought it was a drunken brawl between his own men. Oh. By the time he realised, actually, you know what, that fighting is the enemy, it was a, it was a, a seriously huge problem and he couldn't get out of it. And I think, so I think um, almost Yoshimoto himself was killed. Uh, Two spearmen uh, knocked his head off. And I think almost every single officer in the the, uh, Imagawa army uh, died. So let me get this straight. So they're... So they're all so the the big army. They're all drunk. They're all having a party. Everybody's in their like tents and stuff like that. And then, um, and then, and then the other army comes in and they start killing people. And then uh, Yoshimoto comes out of his tent with a hockey stick and <laughs> he gets killed too. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. All but two of the Imagawa of senior officers were killed. Everyone else ran away and after that the Imagawa army having lost their all basically all their senior leadership um never really recovered strictly speaking you know the it, you know the order then had to go and finish them off but sure but that didn't take too long after that now it's like if the, you go to jail you're supposed to pick a fight with the biggest person there exactly. so that people think you're tough Exactly. And if you happen to actually win that fight yes. and take out all his henchmen around him, then suddenly everyone else thinks, well, what am I going to stick around here for? The reason I was joining this guy was to go to Kyoto. The guy who's going to Kyoto is dead. Yeah. I'm not powerful to do it myself. I'm going uh, home. They never, never ran away or they joined up or they did the sensible thing and they joined up with, with the order forces. Now, interestingly, there was one young officer who wasn't there at the time. He'd led a lot of the attacks into Warari province. But he wasn't present at the time. And his name was uh, Tokugawa Ieyas, later known as the Third of the Three Unifiers. Okay. So oh. the Third Unifier, as like um, uh, as like a 19-year-old, he wasn't there that day, but he was working for the Imagawa at the time. How funny. So now, one note, there was... So he wasn't at this battle, but one of a person who was there was a man I'm going to talk about a bit later on. The second of the future unifiers was present at this battle as a spearman, of all things. Um, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, or Pashiba Hideyoshi, as was known at the time, was present at at, um, at Okeazama. And this was the battle that really first got him noticed um, by Nobunaga. I'll come mm. more to him later on, though. So Nobunaga 
was able to conquer the Imagawa forces and take over a lot of their territory. And so he was now starting to really move through the rest of Japan. Mm. Um, Nobunaga's sister was named Oichi, and he was... Well, and she was married to a man named Azai Nagamasa. Now, the Azai clan were allies of the Oda, uh, but they, this is all, this relates, the issue with Nobunaga's sister relates to Nobunaga needing to conquer Kyoto himself in order to gain credibility. Okay. Because of all Nobunaga, because of his birth, etc., couldn't become shogun, he still needed to control, basically control the shogunate as, essentially, as a puppet. Mm-hmm. So he joined up with, the, with a clan called the Azai, to do that but the azai decided to join up with the shogunate themselves because the shogunate were getting worried about um about the oda clan and so they and so they betrayed the oda nobunaga went after the azai and their asakura clan allies with all they had mm. uh and nobunaga had to kill his brother-in-law azai oh. Nagamasa, oh, man. at the battle of anagawa as you'll you'll find later on Nobunaga's sister didn't have a lot of luck when it came to husbands. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. So she left. So he, yeah, so her husband, Nagamasa Azai, was killed. But before that battle, Azai knew the writing was in the wall because the Azai clan had been beaten before. And so he sent Uichi back to Nobunaga. He said, you know what? You don't need, there's no point in you dying with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the battle of... And so the Battle of Anagawa was in 1570. So this is 10 years on after this, so 10 years on after Okazama. And Anagawa was the first time that Oda had allied himself with Tokugawa Ieyas. Um, so, because Ieyas has been, has been on the eastern side of the Oda forces. And it's not really been, it, he has been more of an ally than a subordinate. Because, of course, mm-hmm. Oda can only be in so many places at once. So, exactly. Oda's been doing something, has been looking at Kyoto and. Um, and the Tokugawa have been watching his back on the eastern side and taking over territory for the order. So they've been allies because, you know, obviously um, Tokugawa was defeated. You know, his, his right. master was defeated. So he was loyal. So he, he was loyal to um, to Oda. Mm-hmm. Oda, by the way, is the one who would kill the mockingbird. He was oh. a brutal. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we started, with the, the killing we started with the killing guy. Yep. <laughs> uh, yep, it's the killing guy came first. Um, now, also around about so in the late fifteen, the eight, so after Okazama, Oda is securing his power. Among his battles uh, includes uh, a group against a group of Buddhist monks. Now, this is a group. This is a, this is a series of conflicts, which is part of the reason that, Oba, that Nobunaga is regarded as something of a demon to, today. Um, but when you think of Buddhist monks he's fighting against, you think of peaceful, meditatory mm-hmm. people, you're actually, you should actually think more like a Taliban. Oh, wow. Some of the Buddhist sects were staunchly opposed to samurai rule, because the samurai were essentially, essentially were taking advantage of the case system. So samurai were considered a better uh... case to people than peasants. You know, you, so, but the Buddhist monks didn't really like that. And so they had formed communities of, you know, of various disaffected people, merchants and peasants and farmers and traders and the like, um, who were opposed to 
samurai rule, but they had also become quite armed and quite militant in their own right. These mm. were not peaceful people, and these were these guys were willing to. They were terrorists. They were mm-hmm. willing to commit mm-hmm. terrorist actions. They were willing to fight and kill in order to maintain their own way of lifestyle, their mm-hmm. way of life. Mm-hmm. So they were a, ma- a major military threat to the Oda clan. And so Oda actually, so there's a group called the Iko Iki, and Oda effectively had to had to wipe them out. He laid siege to um, a big temple called Mount, ha- Mount Hai in 1571, and some estimates say, I mean, say the estimates are probably on the high side. Some estimates say about 20,000 people died. Oh, my God. What? Realistically, it probably wasn't as much as that. The big thing about the samurai is that all the talk, all the toilet of tales, if it sounds too good to be true or sounds too fantastical, <laughs> it's probably not true. Okay. <laughs> it probably didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. So, but there was a lot of casualties. And this, uh, this I mean, Nobunaga was a staunch atheist. And this, so this brought him a lot of enmity. Uh, and these conflicts continued right the way. Fr- the, the monks kept on fighting until the late, 50, late 1570s. Mm. Um, but if it, you know, ultimately, eventually, he won. So Nobunaga turned his attention towards the east. Um, and there's a lot of factions going on. There's a lot of factions fighting for control in the east. Um, again, I can't really cover this in too much detail, but there was a group known as the Kanto Three. Now, Kanto is um, is a region known to most because of mm-hmm. these. It was the site of the first Pokemon games. If you yes. have not listened to the Pokemon episode, it's very good. <laughs> Thank uh, you, Addy. Thanks, Addy. There were there were three. So there are three major warlords in the Kanto area. The the the, the Takeda clan, the Uesugi clan, and the Hojo clan, um, and they were all fighting for each other. The the Usagi and the Takeda actually fought each other five times on the same battlefield over the course of twelve years, mm. um, none of which had a decisive outcome. Um, so they spent a lot of time fighting each other, but they also were very aggressive and also didn't like the like the increasing power of the Oda and their Tokugawa allies. Um, now, the, the, the Takeda were the biggest threat. Uh, their leader, Shingen, uh, and he very, very nearly killed Tokugawa Ieyas at the Battle of Mikatagahara. And the only reason that, that Tokugawa survived is because one of his leading generals basically single-handedly held a bridge against a huge number of enemy troops. And he basically stood in his prison and said, yeah, you know what, if you want me, come and get me. Mm. This guy has the best he, luck in the world, by the way. Yeah, so honestly, far, he actually seriously he he seriously had the best retainer in the world. I, at the end of this, I'm going to kind of mention a couple of notable people from the P, and he's definitely one of them. So Tokugawa was able to just about make it back, but he needed open. He, he, um, the Takeda would have finished them off, except for the fact that he died. Uh, their leader unfortunately died. Possibly of a bullet wound. I think cancer might also have been involved. Oh, jeez. Um, his leader, his so his clan became was taken over by his son, the uh, who is known as Ka- son Katsuyori, who was nowhere near as good. Unfortunately, <laughs> they never was, are. You know, <laughs> yeah, he was. He wasn't really liked. He didn't have the loyalty. Takeda Shingen was fierce. He was a Buddhist monk, so you know he really not liked all this conflict with the monks. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a great tactician, a great leader, and really well regarded. His son was basically a nobody and had no respect um and in the end 
the biggest confrontation between the Oda and the uh, Takeda came in 1575 at the Battle of Nagashino. Now, now, the Battle of Nagashino is a battle that has been misinterpreted through history. A lot of archa- the original, this was a very famous battle, and the well, it was a very significant battle, but the history of it was not accurate, rec- accurately mm-hmm. recorded for a long time. This is considered one of the first battles in which the samurai used guns. Now, a lot of yeah. people think of the samurai as only using swords. Mm-hmm. Not true at all. Uh, they also used, they used a lot of spears, used a lot of pole arms, and they used a lot of bows. The samurai were fun- had been archers for many, many centuries. Mm. And a lot of Japanese swords, you think of them as really brilliant, but actually Japanese iron is terrible. <laughs> Japanese iron, the re- Japanese swords are curved because they have to be folded over and over again. Because mm-hmm. most iron in Japan comes from sand, and they have to fold it over and over to get the p- impurities out. Japanese oh, wow. blades are, they're beautiful, but they're not high quality and they break very easily. Oh. So they're considered, which, yeah, so they're considered very, they're very fragile. So they're much more, you're going to go through them quite quickly. I mean, that's so interesting. Scale. We we watch a lot of Forged in Fire for some yeah. reason over here. Yep. And mm-hmm. I know that it's made it across the pond too. So yes. yeah, like, I guess I didn't yeah. think about like the quality I mean, of their metal. I mean, modern, I mean, today it's a bit different because you've got modern metallurgical <laughs> techniques, which are better at dealing with things. But you, you know, if you've just got, got basically a guy with a large forge and a hammer mm-hmm. and, you know, some metal that's come out of the ground. Yeah, the exactly. Poor quality. You know, there's a lot of it, a lot of grains of sand. That really makes it very brittle. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's so those so those that's the part why the curved edges because it has to be folded over so many times. Um, so it's a very common misconception the samurai didn't use guns. They were they they did. The samurai were using guns from the 1400s. Uh, yeah. Portuguese trading ships brought them over. Now it has to be said, Nobunaga was one of the first to recognize their potential, mm. and he was one of the first to use them in large numbers, but he wasn't the first to use them by any means. And certainly by this time, by the sort of 1570s, guns were being used all the time. Okay. They were, you know, they were using a lot, not necessarily, you know, they were slow to use, you know, they were, they were sure, yeah. inaccurate, you know, they still weren't a patch on a bow or a sword, but they were used a lot. And the advantage of a sword is, or a gun is, any peasant can use one. Yeah. You can give someone a big, someone a big gun and say, Fire, press that trigger, and if you've got a large enough mass of troops, he's going to hit something. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you give someone a bow, you know that takes a lot of physical strength. You know, they couldn't probably couldn't pull the string back far enough, mm-hmm, and he mm-hmm. certainly can't aim it very well. Yeah, you know, exactly. Archers are not, you know, archers are strong. Mm-hmm. If you're going to use archery, you need a lot of upper body strength. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. So whereas any, whereas any farmer, any, you know, anyone can just can have a musket and fire a projectile so mm-hmm. it made it so it changed it changed the face of warfare so yeah Nagashino- definitely and it's funny because we just keep hearing like the phrase samurai swords over and over like yeah. you know what i mean like that's what's kind of ingrained in our in our heads from yeah. this time and period even, even that the, even like the sword that you think of when you think of samurai sword is a katana and that mm-hmm. is certainly the main sword is but it's not the only one yeah you know there's there's wakizashi which is a shorter sword the tanto which is more like a dagger uh, you've got Nodachi, which is the big thing about sort of two meters long and a huge, it was more like a giant sai on a stick than it is a sword. <laughs> you know, there's lots of, you know, the samurai, you know, samurai sword, you know, you wouldn't just say like an American gun. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. yeah, you might mean like a Colt or something like, or a Smith and Wesson, but like it's. It's a general you know, it's a term. term. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Again, so, we're looking at you, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So Nagashino, it's not the first time that guns were used, uh, but it is a very famous example of them because Takeda were very famous for their cavalry charge. It was kind of like French in that sense. You know, they were mm. they had they would charge at you on horseback, which was terrifying. <laughs> but you know, if you've got a lot of them, a lot of really well trained cavalry. But Nobunaga had a thousand guns set up. <sighs> it's it is meant to be a thousand, not three thousand, as is commonly said. Now, Nobunaga had uh, revolt had stockades. So what he would do is he would have, like groups of gunners. So one person would fire, then he'd step back and reload, and another one would take his place and fire, and he'd take back, and another one would take his place. So you got groups mm. of like, three. So there's a continu- which means a continuing volley. Yeah. Of fire. That was something that was more that was that was possibly. I'm not even I'm, that. No one ever certainly popularized that idea. So rather than just one person fires and you got to wait three minutes until someone else goes, you got three or four people in the same place all yeah. working together. And so you've got a load of horses charging at you and it basically just massacres them. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the Takada... Now, the battle was a lot closer than people say, um, but it was ultimately still a decisive victory for the Oda clan. Um, and the Takada were basically done as a military force after that. Katsuyori fled and he went to his cousin who basically said please help me and his cousin said his cousin saw the writing on the wall and said no shut the door on him <laughs> Oda came up and finished them off but then Oda also killed the cousin because the cousin had betrayed his family so <laughs> honor know. it's all about honor guys. it's all about the honor yeah. it's all about honor and the, and it's all about family and and ultimately I mean Nobunaga was actually surprisingly meritocratic you know he would he would spare his enemies if they were of use, or if they, you know, if these, you know, mm. if a guy has fought really well and really hard against them, he said, you know what, you are doing your duty for your master. Mm. If you want to charge exactly as fiercely as you did against me, but maybe face the other direction, mm-hmm. you know, fight those other guys instead. Yeah. <laughs> join me, you know. He, you know, he let peasants into his army. I mean, Hideyoshi, you know, the second unifier ultimately was a, was born a peasant, and yet he became a general in Nobunaga's army, which mm. is unheard. I mean, you barely see that nowadays. Yeah, know? yeah, you know, exactly. He was surprised. He recognized the value in people. But Takeda had no value after Shingen died. Mm-hmm. Um, so they ultimately... Worked. So, uh, so, and the same happened with various other groups. So by the end of the 1570s, Nobunaga has basically started is making serious progress, much better progress than anyone has ever done before, at wiping at conquering Japan. So when I were looking at, um, uh, there was one of our eight key enemy we wanted to, oh, there's a group which I will mention probably more later on. Ninja are popular seen as, in, are famous from Japanese mythology mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Ninja were not really a thing as we know them. Mm. Ninja are a thing in the same way that cowboys in Western films were <laughs> I a see. thing. Mm-hmm. As in, technically they existed, but not in, the, but the sort of, they're John not Wayne hopping out behind every single. Didn't exist. No. Yeah, yeah. The idea, I mean, ninja were stealth operators, but this idea that they dressed up in black—you know, dress—you mm-hmm. know—that is actually taken from theater. That's taken from from uh, Japanese bunraku theater, mm. in which the a conceit was that stagehands would be all dressed in black, so the audience know this guy on stage who's sort of changing the scenery, who's all wearing black. You ignore him. He's, He's not, not part, part of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If it turns so in a sort of meta type way, sometimes you get characters who disguise themselves as would dress up like the stagehands. Mm-hmm. And so the guy who the audience is trained to ignore turns out and stabs someone. Oh. Yeah, then it's like a double yeah. cross. 
Yeah. yeah, and the audience don't expect it. It's really shocking because they because that's the guy they're not paying attention to. Oh, he's just a stagehand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's I kind of a, a weird sort of breaking the fourth wall type thing. Mm-hmm. But that's where the idea of the of the modern ninja comes from. Oh. The samurai did, ninja did not dress like that or did not act like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they would be most ninja would be samurai and they would dress like normal people. Yeah, <laughs> they would dress like peasants. Or if they're trying to infiltrate a castle, you don't go there where you're you know wearing a big black bathrobe. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you dress like the people who are already there. Yeah, and he yeah. isn't doing a night infiltration. You black sticks out against the night sky. You wear dark blue. Mm-hmm. Bas- you know, <laughs> that's a diplomatic. Blue. Right yeah, there. yep. You heard it first, yeah. folks. Exactly. You know, that's how you do it. So, ninja. Although there were a couple of clans who did actually train, you did focus on training uh, ninja, and really, what the Japanese called was actually shinobi. Uh, ninja is kind of an odd reading of the word. Uh, for shinobi okay um but they were essentially hired as mercenaries only really in the period roughly sort of in the sengoku period in these sort of late 1500 late 1400s into the 1500s um and basically nobunaga in the 1580s wiped them all out they were becoming too much of a threat so he basically his son decided to try and make a name for himself by attacking them but that was kind of that went about as well as the Empire wiping out Ewoks and returning the Jedi did. <laughs> the, a conventional army charging into a force controlled by guerrillas who know exactly how to use a terrain. Yeah. Did not end well. And Nobunaga actually considered killing his own son for it. He didn't, but he considered it. Um, <laughs> but he went in himself and actually did the job properly. And so then just they were, they were still used after that, but not to the same real extent. The mm. idea of them as a cultural thing was only really in a couple of areas of Japan and only for about 100 years mm. in this time. So yeah. after about 1580 odd, Nobunaga has more or less controlled the country. So he decides now to send all his leading generals off in different directions. And the most important one of those is he sent uh, Hideyoshi to fight a clan who are controlling the West called the Mori clan. Um, and the Mori clan had a castle called Takamatsu, and he Mori and Hideyoshi requested assistance from another general of Mitsuhi, another general called Akechi Mitsuhide. Uh, and this was a, this was 1582, and Mitsuhide said went off to help Hideyoshi, supposedly, mm. <laughs> not what actually happened. What actually happened is one of the is one of the great events in Japanese history. Akechi very secretly made a declaration. No, made a de- decided to turn his forces around and go in the other direction. Mm. Uh, Nobunaga was camped out with a small group at a temple called Hanoji, um, somewhere near near Kyoto, I think. Um, and Akechi Mitsuhide decide actually apparently made the famous declaration i don't know if he actually said these words the enemy is that when he asked me his generals were asking what he was going to do and he said the enemy is at honoji and he basically had his men surround honoji her surround the temple mm. and he attacked it and he actually and he so he burned it to the ground or oda's men did it themselves but the temple was burned anyway and oda Right when he's on the point, basically of conquering the whole of Japan, out of nowhere, is dead. He's forced to kill himself. Wow. Now, and what is what is even more shocking about this? 
nobody knows why Mitsuhide did it. Oh, interesting. One of the the greatest conquerors in all of history, and nobody knows why he was assassinated. There's been lots of theories and lots of speculation about this. Uh, Akechi was a Buddhist who was known to be quite offended by the destruction of the Ikoiki. My belief on it, based on the evidence I've seen, is that it's because Akechi was quite a staunch traditionalist and Mm. didn't like the meritocratic and kind of the new innovations that... Um, that that Nobunaga was was implementing, and he so he, he was basically out of spite and said, you know what, I should do this myself. Mm-hmm. But whatever the case may be, so it's you know we will never know why. Yeah. He did it, but the first of the fires was killed by one of his own men. Wow. Uh, as was his eldest son, uh, <laughs> nearby. Who was he was nearby. So mm. now, interestingly, very recent evidence. And I say very recent, I mean evidence discovered in like the last couple of weeks. Wow. Has revealed. Breaking news, Misu, guys. Mitsuhite himself was not at Honoji. He didn't lead mm. that attack. Which actually makes complete sense because ultimately he had no reason to be there in person. You know, you mm-hmm. generally don't you, you know, you send your subordinates to actually do the grunt work. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what this this came up, there's a document that had been known about anyway, but people would only really read different parts of a document relating to later on. But it turns out someone actually looked at the document again and discovered stuff relating to earlier history. Mm-hmm. So this is a document written about, I think, about 100 years later. But it includes details from people who were actually there. So it's, it's considered reliable. Yeah. Nobody had looked at this other part of the document <laughs> and seen actually makes reference to Akechi being, himself being about eight miles south of Hanoji. Um So this now triggers a massive succession crisis. Mm-hmm. Because what's happened is that, you know, as with the Imagawa card, you know, the head's been cut off the snake. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, these because all of um, the older generals are all over the country, which is probably why Akechi did it then, because they, they were everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. There. yeah. So this was now there was now a race between three people to try and take over, and of course, one of them succeeded, which was Hideyoshi. The other two were Shibata Katsui, who was now married to. Oichi, Nobunaga's sister, mm. and the other was Tokugawa Ieyas, whose time hadn't yet come. Mm. So Hideyoshi needed to was so he, so now we move on to the story of Hideyoshi. Hideyoshi um, started uh, Hideyoshi started life as a son of a spearman. He was a peasant. He didn't even have a surname. Mm. He was considered a bit of a rebellious child. He was born in 1537. He was a son of a, of a spearman, and he didn't really have a purpose in life in his early years. You know, he kind of ran about doing various things and ends up ultimately ends up joining um, Nobunaga's army mm-hmm. as a sandal bearer. Not exactly a, a prestigious role. He just has to carry huh. shoes? He was, yeah. And then he got a job as a spearman. And he, mm-hmm. you know, and he fought in Okeazama. Mm-hmm. Um, Hideyoshi's rise to power is probably, to me, the single most meteoric rise of anybody in history. Wow! This is a man who started life as a son of a spearman and ended up a genocidal megalomaniac Bond villain. <laughs> oh um, my god! <laughs> yeah, it gets scarier points. Um, but this is a guy who was ambitious and capable beyond belief because he managed to rise from his being a peasant. He fought in a few battles, got distinguished, fought in more battles, got more distinction, 
became an officer, was given some troops, did well, was given more troops, and so on. And he became a daimyo and he became a general in Nobunaga's army. Mm-hmm. Now, he then, now he quickly moved to finish off, he made peace with the Mori clan. What he did to finish them off was to finish off, the, the, the castle he was besieging was landlocked. What he did, he spent two weeks digging out rivers, digging, digging into the rivers around the castle, and he basically flooded it. He turned, oh. a, he turned a castle that's in the middle of a field into an, a castle in the middle of an artificial lake. Wow. He literally flooded the castle by redirecting a river into it. Oh my god. And so a relief army came from the west and was stuck on the other side, and Hideyoshi killed anyone who tra- from the castle who tried to escape. Oh my god. And so he basically made a deal. He said, he's you know, he researched the, the castle in a castle and said, if you come out in a boat in the middle of this lake that I've made, kill yourself in front of all of us, I'll spare your men. <laughs> oh my god. And, you know what? One guy for the life of the, everyone else in the castle? Deal. Yeah, exactly. He did it. And, you know, he died honorably and the castle surrendered and Hideyoshi made his peace, which it turned out he needed to do because he because then he heard, heard about Nobunaga's death and he needed to go sharpish to, to mm-hmm. take to go to Mitsuhide. Um, Mitsuhide was, was, did not have a particularly long reign in charge of Nobunaga's armies. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why he's not considered one of the three unifiers. Because 11 days after killing Nobunaga, he was dead. Oh my god, yeah. Um, Hideyoshi was able to move his troops very, very, very quickly. Mm. Force marches all day, all night. And he actually defeated and killed Mitsuhide at a battle called uh, the Battle of Yamazaki. Um, partially because the field around Yamazaki was controlled by, was surrounded by a mountain called Mount Tenno. And Akechi stupidly didn't put troops on it, but Hideyoshi did, and Hideyoshi basically fell straight off the mountain and into the Akechi camps and slaughtered them all. Akechi himself retreated to a small village where he was lynched by rice farmers. Dang. Or possibly escaped and became a Buddhist priest. There's rumor that, you know, this one is, oh, maybe he survived for decades after that, but Mm, basically, mm -hmm. but point is, Akechi's dead, and so that put, and so because Hideyoshi has avenged him, he's the one who's now in prime position. Mm. So he now then takes on the other two generals. So um, Shibata Katsuri comes next. Shibata is unfortunately stuck on the wrong side of a mountain range in winter, and so can't attack because of snow because of snows, <laughs> which means that Hideyoshi has several months to prepare. Mm. And and um, so when Shibata tries attacking, his own generals mess it up. And they attack when they're told to attack to retreat. They don't. They attack. They get themselves killed. Mm. And uh, and Hideyoshi absolutely annihilates the Shibata forces. And this time, Nobunaga's sister decides to kill herself and die with her second oh husband. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! I feel like Ascension perhaps after- this episode has the most. Uh, has the highest body count out of all. Yeah, yeah, so far, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, we did a a Genghis Khan, we did some Dictator December, but I don't know. This is up for the running. The three unifiers sure sound like uh, they're they're unifying a lot of bloodshed here. Yeah. Oh, it gets worse. (laughs) It gets much worse. Because Nobunaga's surviving sons had each had kind of divided. One had gone with Shibata and was killed, and one went to Tokugawa Ieyas, who was the other one. Now... These two fought each other to a standstill. Neither one of these two could actually beat the other. Tokugawa was, but it had 
Whilst Hideyoshi was off in the West, Tokyo had basically established himself as the dominant power in the East. Mm. Um, but they fought themselves into a standstill over a couple of years, so 1583, 1584, the battles known as Kobaki Nagute. And what basically happened is uh, Tokugawa basically surrendered to Hideyoshi and said, you know what, if you let me live, I'll be your vassal. Mm. I'll serve you and let you in charge. Because he knew that Hideyoshi was more powerful. Fair enough. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Hideyoshi is the guy who makes the mockingbird sing whereas Tokugawa is the guy who waits for it to sing Tokugawa was known for being very patient he would bide his time okay. you know, he knew, you know what, now's not my time Hideyoshi then was basically able to complete, more or less complete the conquest of Japan He because he had Tokugawa as an ally on one side mm-hmm. and he'd already made peace with the Mori clan who was, he was able to finish off in the west and he basically then conquered everyone else um the completion of this was uh, in 1590 when he took a castle called Odawara from the Hojo clan. The Hojo had been one of the Kanto three. They lasted the longest. And their castle was fought more or less impregnable, but Hideyoshi managed to do it. He basically had pretty much the whole of Japan on his side at this point. Do we still have and an emperor? Is there still an emperor? There is still an emperor, but the emperor isn't really doing anything. He's... Yeah. Basically, a neutral party. I mean, neutral party, but there is no shogun because the shogun was actually the last shogun was deposed by Nobunaga okay. and was basically, probably, I think, probably secretly assassinated. So, from about 1573 through to about 1603, there is no shogun. Oh, okay. So, that so there's only ever one shogun. Yes. Okay. The shogun okay. is the top general. Okay. Great. I yeah. see. Okay. Yeah, it's like this was like the the arch com- the commander in chief. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If like if if like if the U.S. chief of staff had one person in charge, yeah. Or if there was, or if there was someone on top of the chief of staff other than the president, yeah. Yeah. So like the military, and then yeah. there's the yeah. absolute military. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. But 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 the, the shogun, even the shoguns, had increasingly little power. They were basically whoever, whichever daimyo had control over Kyoto, more or less controlled yeah. the shogun at that point. Yeah. Um, and so Nobunaga basically, he couldn't become shogun. He basically got rid of it. Um, the last ones ended up deposed and assassinated. Hideyoshi couldn't become shogun because he was peasant-born. Because you know they still cared about mm. his blood. Mm-hmm. He did manage to get himself adopted into a major clan, the Fujiwara clan. Basically, as far as I can tell, I believe he actually basically invented a uh, a new past for himself. He basically forged oh, wow. documents to get himself adopted by a clan by a clan who used to be very powerful but got deposed centuries earlier, called the Fujiwara clan. The Fujiwara clan, fun fact, used to be called Nakatomi. Nakatomi okay. being a fan or being known to anyone who watches Die Hard. Yes, yes. I was going to say Nakatomi they have power. a very famous plaza. Yes, in everybody's is. favorite I Christmas movie. I, yep, exactly. I don't know if that's deliberate or not, but the, Turkey, but the Nakatomi in real life became, well, ultimately became the Fujiwara. Mm. Um, and they had large, largely lost their power. They were kind of an imperial... The Fujiwara were important in the imperial court, and that's about it. They had no practical mm-hmm. power. But um, Hideyoshi managed to get himself adopted by them, I think probably using four documents. And although he couldn't become shogun... He could get all sorts of other titles, including the big one he got was Kampaku, which is regent. So mm. he which is basically more or less the shogun. Sure. Close enough, not technically, but close enough to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so by this point, 
Hideyoshi now has United Japan. You know, job done. Now he's got a problem, though. Well, he's got two big problems. First one is, you've got 150 years of war. You've got people with Samuel to Samurai who have done nothing but war for four or five generations. Yeah. What do you do with them? How do yeah. they go live peacefully? Well, the answer is, you know, they don't. Yeah. So you do someone else them to fight. If there's no one else left to fight in, in, in Japan, who do you fight? Well, foreigners. They're, yeah. Namely, China. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Aim big. <laughs> so to get to China, Hideyoshi needed to go via Korea, um, which was a series of kingdoms at this point. Um, Korea said, no, we're not going <laughs> to ally with you against China. Korea instead asked China for help for defense. Mm. Hideyoshi got angry Ugh. and decided he was going to invade Korea. Oh boy. They're Which, like, come on! We've... <laughs> he was going to invade Korea and use Korea as a staging point to get to China. Now, oh, this went so disastrously badly that 500 years or four or 500 years on, Korean Japanese relations are still bad. Right. Wow. Yeah. The Koreans have not really forgiven the Japanese for this. Damn. I actually memories. didn't realize it was like 500 years ago. I thought it was. I, yeah. I guess it's I like, thought it well, was. Well, 400 years, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is a, I mean, this is like Elizabethan times in the UK. Right. And it's like, like we're getting our first colony over here in the. In yeah, the, it's, yeah, it's Columbus's time. You know, obviously, yeah. you know, it, it's, or not long after that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the very early days of the US colonies, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Hideyoshi launches an invasion of Korea. We're talking probably one of the, possibly the biggest international invasion seen this side of D-Day. It's oh probably killed the Normandy landings. Something like 200,000 Japanese oh made the attack. He did not take this lightly. Because he didn't want a load of out-of-work Japanese samurai. <laughs> you know, a bunch of warriors with nothing to do. Yeah. Uh, scheming. Each other. Yeah, you've got to keep them busy. Exactly. Because mm-hmm. they don't want to just Hideyoshi, farm. <laughs> I mean, there exactly. were a lot of legal reforms going on this time. He sort of pacified the peasantry. He made it the only samurai could have arms. You know, well, weapons. He, mm-hmm. he you can keep your arms. Yeah. <laughs> you have to keep <laughs> your two arms. <laughs> unless you're these. But he, so he basically had his, had his armies invade Korea. And they did quite well at first. They actually occupied Seoul. Wow. Um, but things fairly quickly started going badly. Um, now, the problem is Hideyoshi was power mad at this point. He, you know, he was a peasant who now literally was ruling the whole of Japan. He'd become megalomaniacal. It's, you know, if you're a guy who, you know, you've, you've been a peasant and now you think you can become emperor of China. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what does that say about your personality? Exactly. Yeah, that's crazy. So he was... A flat it was a brutal man and a flat, he was flat out dictatorial at this point. Now what this meant is that people were scared of him and they were mm-hmm. scared of giving him bad news. Mm. So when things started going badly in Korea, they decided not to tell him. <laughs> Which you it's, know what? If you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, go with the lie, you know? <laughs> this this, however, reached a bit of a the, the problem is, ultimately, when the Japanese were completely beaten and his generals made, you know, effectively signed off terms, effectively surrendering the Japanese armies in Korea. And so Chinese emiss- emissaries came through to visit Hideyoshi to 
offer him terror, you know, to sort of accept the surrender. This had gone to such an extreme, Hideyoshi thought they were coming so that they could surrender to him. Ah. He thought <laughs> people had told him so little about the war, they told him he'd won when he'd been defeated. What? What? What's the end game there, my bro? Come it on. Was to say, Hideyoshi was the kind of the opposite of happy. <laughs> yeah, you're telling me. And so a lot of people were probably executed. Um, mm-hmm. Fortunately, for basically the entire world, Hideyoshi died before his next invasion because he said, you know what, this is real. He decided he was going to make Korea again, but out of revenge more oh. than anything. Yikes. He died before much could really come of that. But before all that happened, he had another issue whilst the Korean invasion was going on, which was the succession, because he needed an heir. Mm-hmm. His wife... Now, now the thing is, in Japanese samurai society, the men were all fighting, but the women controlled the household. And that mm-hmm. actually, in practical terms, Japanese women actually had more power than probably oh, a lot yeah. of women in a lot of places at that time, because they controlled... The finances, they control basically, because the household, they were household administrators. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, in practical terms, actually, the women basically ran the show. Yeah, exactly. Men had the swords and were all fighting. But you know what? Women weren't exactly, they weren't just reduced to sort of the mother or kitchen role. You know, they were managers. They mm-hmm, ran yeah. the place. They made the decisions. And it was commonly seen that Hideyoshi's wife, uh, Lady Nene, was, they were basically ruled Japan together. You know, they were a genuine partnership. Yeah, okay. I mean, all these guys, you know, they had loads of concubines, you know, and, and all this. But those who weren't in, who were actually in happy marriages, like he or she actually was, um, you know, the the wives, you could be a, a woman in that society and actually have a hell of a lot more power than you would than you might be necessarily in like a British or an American situation at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you were entrusted with that authority because, frankly, men didn't want to deal with numbers or sums or anything like that. All they wanted to do was military stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can't so, be you know bothered what? with hey, the math. I just want to hit things with my big hockey that means stick. That the women are controlling the finances. So, so if husband wants money to go off to war, he has to ask his, his you know, his partner. I love it. I like that. So, Me too. Um, yeah, so, but unfortunately, his wife wasn't able to give him kids. Now, he did give a young son by one of his concubines, but his son died uh, quite young, done in infancy. So he, so Hideyoshi made his young nephew his heir. Now, his nephew, Hideyoshi, was hated by everybody. He was a violent person. He was cruel. He, you know, he beat women. You know, he was a monster of a man. Mm. But he was the only real relative that Hideyoshi actually had. You know, all this fighting and all that and no sons. Mm. You know, to paraphrase the god, you know, departed. You know, he Hideyoshi didn't have an heir. Ultimately, however, belatedly, Hideyoshi did get a son by his concubine, which meant about he had a problem because now he'd already named his nephew as heir. Mm. So he massacred his nephew and that entire side of the family. Oh my god! Men, women, kids. He simply slaughtered them all. How do you solve the succession price crisis? <laughs> Well, if nobody's alive, there yeah. is no crisis. So, his so these aren't son. all good guys. I was like, the three unifiers. Won't this be a nice story? <laughs> I da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah, this is a guy who was laughed and joked. He looked like a monkey, apparently. So he was. People used to joke about him being a monkey uh, when he was young. 
No, this guy is one of the most brutal dictators in all of history. Oh my god. I, when I said Bond villain, I didn't use <laughs> yeah, that term. You were not kidding. <laughs> Dang. And this is Dude. real. This actually, this shit actually happened. Oh my happened. gosh. So, um, fortunately for basically everybody, he died in about 1598, which met, which spared the world any more of this. But that in itself, but, but that in itself creates a bit of a crisis because his heir was only an infant, mm-hmm. really, at the time. Mm-hmm. So now we step, so now we enter the third of the three Unifars, the guy who would actually win all of this, uh, Tokugawa Ieyas. So he had been born to a vassal clan of the Imagawa way back when. Mm-hmm. And so, so he was basically, he spent most of his youth as a hostage. It was quite common in those days that families would trade sons to each other as hostages to get them to do what they wanted. So, you know, so one, so he got a clan. This is wild, Addy. This is is out of control. Yeah. So one clan controls another. So they take your son and say, well, you know what? If you step out of line, your young son dies. That's the deal. And that was accepted. Wow. Wow. Um, I take it back, Lauren. It's nothing like a drag house. (laughs) No, it's not. It's not. So, no, Oda, Tokugawa was freed, essentially, by the Oda clan after after the Imagawa fell. Uh, Tokugawa was freed from his obligations and became his own man. And he took control of his own province and he started building up his power base. And then he joined, as I said, you know, he joined Oda and then he joined, later joined Hideyoshi. Mm-hmm. So he became the most powerful daimyo in the east of Japan. Now, after his death, or just before his death, Hideyoshi set up a council of regents to look over to to look over things when you know until his son because came his age. baby couldn't exactly be in charge so he yet. Five of the most powerful men in the land. Now, normally these councils are set up so as to all get along with each other, but it looks like Hideyoshi deliberately included men who hated each other, <laughs> so they'd all be keeping an eye out for one another. So the idea uh-huh. is that they wouldn't form a unified front, and they certainly wouldn't decide. You know what? The five of us can work together. Let's just kill this little boy. That didn't happen. Now, the two most powerful regents were Tokugawa and an old retainer called Maida Toshi, uh, who had fought back uh, with, who'd one of, who was uh, Hideyoshi's oldest friend from way back when, and a powerful daimyo in his own right. Maida, things were fine as long as Maida was alive. After, but he died after like a year or two. Uh, and so all bets were off after that. Basically, all the others knew that, all the other regents knew that Tokugawa was now going to finally make his move. Considering he's been fighting for like 40 years at this point, Tokugawa is patient. But now he finally decides, you know what, everyone else is gone, I'm going to make my move. The others knew that. So they decided to ally against Tokugawa. Now, the nominal leader of the coalition was actually someone from the Mori clan, um... But in practice, the actual leader was a guy named Ishida Mitsunari. Ishida Mitsunari was not a powerful, well, he was powerful in his own way, but he was a bureaucrat. Mm. He was an administrator. He had been over, he was the guy who went over to Korea and was giving performance reviews of the daimyos. Mm. Okay. <laughs> People didn't like him. Mm. <laughs> but. He could bring people together because everybody else hated Tokugawa Ieyasu. Mm. So he 
in practice had the control. So there was a there was a large coalition of um, of people, which was basically which in practice was led by Ishida. Now, what happened? Japan was essentially divided in two: the east and the west. It was the entire country was now split straight down the middle. Okay. Mm. The east supporting supporting uh, Tokugawa and the west supporting um, Ishida. Uh, various others who had, you know basically everyone else fell into one group or another. Everyone else was more or less subjugated. There were other guys who tried their hand at getting involved in this, but they were either, they were too late, they were too small, they were infighting. Yeah. The yeah. ultimately everyone so there was there was the eastern side and the western side. And the culmination of all this, so there was a lot of conflicts between them, but this all came together in a course of a couple of years, really. And it all came to a head on October 21st, 1600, which was the Battle of Sekigahara, which is one of the most important and famous battles that nobody in the West has really ever heard of. But this is the battle that decided the future of Japan. Mm. Um this That's a pretty huge. big deal. Yeah. Uh, I knew when he said we, the date, I was like, oh, right. Oh, yeah. Here we go. We're talk- now, when I say this is a big battle, I mean we're talking 150,000 men oh, my God. on the battlefield. And there are at least another 50,000 on each side couldn't make it. <laughs> oh, wow. Because they were entire armies. Because the rude, basically the two armies were coming towards each other. Mm-hmm. Um. And there's a main road that goes right through Japan, still active today, they're called the Kaido. And so it's the main axis road. And basically both armies are kind of stuck on one side of the Kaido, coming down towards the middle. But there were lots of other, there were various other armies from different clans and retainers on each side who were engaging with each other along the way. You know, and so one, you know, so one group would besiege one castle, which meant that, you know, which would stop them from joining the advance. Yeah, yeah. So different armies stopped each other. So you know, so like a couple of thousand men would hold up ten thousand the castle. Uh, you know, one battle would fight and uh, would fight another. One army would fight another, force them to retreat. So all of a sudden, you know, so and this happened on both sides. But one hundred fifty thousand men landed on Sekigahara, and this huge colossal conflict in Japan was over in a morning. Oh, wow! The whole battle between east and west lasted no more than a day. And it was an absolute massacre on the pop for the East. The Oof. East crushed the West. Part of the reason for this is that Ishida was hated by the generals. Huh. Now, uh, the, the distant, they didn't, he didn't have any military credentials. He didn't have any respect. He was a bureaucrat. He was an administrator. Whereas Tokugawa had all these conflicts behind his back. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd fought all these people. He had his military credentials. Um, a key aspect of the battle was key, the numbers were broadly even. A key unit in the battle was the Kobayakawa family, who were um, controlled by a man named Hideaki, and they guarded the Ishida left flank. Now, their loyalty was a bit uncertain because it turns out that Hideaki had been monitor have been given really really bad reviews in korea by ishida mitsunari Uh (laughs) so tokugawa said betray him join us on the day of the battle itself oh wow until the battle but then switch sides 
Now, it seems there probably may have been good reason for Hideaki to be hated. I mean, I think he was a bit of a, he was, he committed a fair number of atrocities in Korea. Mm-hmm. The Japanese forces murdered a lot of innocent Koreans. There's mm-hmm. good reason why that hasn't really been forgotten. Um, Hideaki was not a particularly nice guy, but he was also kind of, but on the day of the battle itself, he was kind of, he decided to stall for time a bit. The signal came, Isida sent the signal up saying, Okay, Hideaki, attack. That was meant to be the time, so Hideaki was meant to actually, you know what, go the other way. Mm-hmm. After a while, both sides were concerned because both sides are expecting him to do something and he's not. <laughs> Eventually, Tokugawa fires at Hideaki and says, you know what, one way or the other, you're making a decision here. Mate. Yeah, exactly. You're not sitting around doing nothing. He fires at Hideaki. And finally, Hideaki decides to join Tokugawa. I think he just realized that, you know what, Tokugawa is actually is going to win this. Yeah. So all of a sudden, Tokugawa... So all of a sudden, Hideaki... So Ishida's left flank goes charging into his own left flank. Oh, no. So all the guys on, on the left and behind him who were expecting support are now being attacked by their own men. Wow. And what was worse than this was there was an important clan called the Shimizu clan who were from south, southwestern Japan. They were one of the last clans that Hideyoshi conquered. A very powerful and very proud clan. And they really hated Ishida because of his <laughs> non-military background. So they decided they were simply going to do nothing in the battle. They stood on a hill doing nothing. Wow. They didn't join either side, which meant that all the troops behind them couldn't join in the battle. <laughs> they simply yeah. stood their ground. And it wasn't as if Ishida could attack them. Yeah. So he simply said, you know what, we're going to stay neutral. So one group um, was like, what was that? Sorry, sorry, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. <laughs> and then they attacked what looked like their own yep. group. And then this other group's on the hill and they're like, sorry, we can't get there. <laughs> yep. Now, this sorry, group, guys. It, it was a bit of a double-edged sword for the guy stuck in the middle because ultimately when the battle when it came when the battle reached its thickest they kind of had to fight their way off because sure. the friends didn't exactly like them but they haven't joined the other side either yeah so they had to kind of run for their lives so their clan leader yoshihiro eventually survived but only because his young nephew made a heroic sacrifice his young nephew basically took a few of his loyal guys and basically held off said you know what Uncle, you run for it. I'll stand here and hold them off. Wow. So the family certainly did. So did lose a lot of people, but you know it was an honor thing. They they, mm-hmm. they didn't join. So in the course of a, so by mid afternoon, uh, the issue of issue of forces had been basically wiped out or had fled. Ishida himself escaped, but was captured and beheaded a couple of days later, and. That meant that in one fell swoop, now, Tokugawa Ieyasu's power was undisputed. Mm. He had done it. He had, he, had, he had control. And a couple of years later, he got himself made shogun. Mm. And then he avoided the succession crisis after that. What he did was he resigned as shogun in favour of his own son. But mm. he was still alive. So he was still effectively controlling things in the background. But he had essentially established his new shogunate because he was from the white royal blood. He could be shogun. Okay, and he yeah. now had undisputed control. I say undisputed. <laughs> there was one slight problem. And this is about the epilogue to this, which was, and that's Hideyori, the young son of Hideyoshi. 
Mm. Oh, was, the baby who couldn't yeah, the be baby. the baby who couldn't was, be in yeah, charge. Yeah, he had, eventually he came away because he was exiled <laughs> to Osaka. So he was, you know, so to far so far off. He was, you know, and so you know, she was just left alone. Unfortunately, eventually the boy became an adult. Mm-hmm. So the final epilogue to this really is that in sixteen fourteen, when he's about eighteen or nineteen or so, he rebels. You know, he's now an adult and said, you know what? Because he'd become a bit of a hot bit. He'd become a place where people who didn't like the Tokugawa could go. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, like them, you know, they were still the old enemies. They could still go there. So he had a lot of supporters. And I think it was really his family and his supporters who actually basically pushed him to rebel. He probably <laughs> didn't care about all that. You know, that was mm-hmm. you know, that was his dad's fight. You know, he didn't really Yeah, care. exactly. But he kind of had to do it. He was the figurehead. Um... And so his so Osaka Castle was built up. The, the his his troops built up a lot of fortifications, and he started a rebellion. And so Tokugawa or his son, I think, really at this point, went along and said, "You know what? Yeah, that's not cool." They fought a couple of battles and they knocked down the fortifications, but he said, "You know what? We'll let you off just this once." So this is the winter. So this is the winter campaign of Osaka in 1614. A couple of months later, they decided to build up the fortifications again. Oh boy. So in summer 1615, there's the summer campaign. And so Tokyo <laughs> are forced to come back again. They're not as kind this time. Uh, yeah, I believe it. They say, so you know what? You had your chance. I let you hide away. And then I even let you off for the first time you rebelled. You're not getting off a second time. Oh boy. And he was forced to commit seppuku. And his forces were destroyed. The castle was eradicated. And... That really was it. And the Tokugawa's strength was basically then unchallenged for the next 250 years. Wow. There was one rebellion in like the 1630s, uh, the Shimabara Rebellion. But other than that, it was basically more or less peace. The Tokugawa had a military, it was a military, I say peace, it was a military dictatorship. Sure. It was brutally oppressive. You know, all of the other daimyos were kind of disempowered, you know, and people, he, Tokugawa took steps to basically make sure this wasn't going to happen again. Wow. But he had power and his family lasted 250 years until uh, 1868 when the emperor and end up finally asserting control and basically wiping out the samurai. Yeah, and then like the Tom samurai, Cruise shows up yeah, and they do yeah, yeah. the last samurai. The samurai and... had, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go into all that, but what <laughs> happened is that the samurai had basically become decadent because they were peaceful and they become bureaucrats, aristocrats. Mm-hmm. And they basically had no purpose anymore. So they sort of started inventing purposes themselves and they rewrote their own history. And that's where all this rewriting happens. Yeah. Because they okay. were excited to rewrite the history to make it seem like they were still relevant and that people should be controlling them. Oh. And eventually, because the world was changing and moving on and they were being left behind. Yeah. And so eventually they tried to take back power by force and were utterly crushed. And the emperor came in and you know, said, you know what, I'm taking control for good this time. Mm-hmm. And the samurai as a ruling class you know, were basically stopped. Yeah. And yeah. so that's when, that sort of time is when you get a lot of the misconceptions of mm-hmm. the kind of samurai. Thing. I see. And the yeah. biggest one is the notion of the samurai warrior code, the code of chivalry, which mm. is called, this comes up a lot, it's called Bushido. Oh, yeah, the right. way of the warrior. That is, as an article puts up, t- now the Bush- Bushido, the way of the warrior, or as a good article online puts it, the way of total bullshit. 
term doesn't exist until the later times, until the oh. 19th century. The idea that samurai... I mean, samurai, there was a lot of honour, and but, I mean, the idea that they had this sort of code that they all lived by, and they were... You know, you've heard some of the brutality. If yeah. they were really those sort of knights in shining armour, they didn't... No. No. Yeah. Ultimately, samurai were like people. You know, they were like yeah. British knights, or, <laughs> you know, or whatever. You know, they were... They were people. Some of them yeah. were nice. Some of them were genuine sort of St. George fighting the dragon types. Some of them were bandits wearing armor. Some of them were yeah. murderers. Some of them were actually nice. You know, they were people. Good or yeah. bad, people don't change. We are who we are. Yeah, exactly. So this idea of this, of a warrior code is just a complete falsehood. And it just drives <laughs> me up the wall every time I see it. It was, <laughs> it was part of a lot of attempts by later samurai to romanticize their own past yeah, and sure. heroes and kind of gloss over all this brutality and death and murdering they were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes back all... to what you said before, like the victors write the history. And the victors so, write the history. So they absolutely got to like yeah, like you said, like romanticize this. Exactly. You know, exactly you see what, what you know, and all these and of course because the world is becoming you know, because Japan had closed itself off, the Japan decided to blame foreigners, you know, for a lot of its ills, mm-hmm. you know, and they cracked down on Christianity and sort of Western religions and that sort of stuff. And, but come late 19th century, you know, the world is opening up again. You know, mm-hmm. people are finding whether they want to be found or not. You know, ships are, you know, like Americans and British, you know, are finding this island. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they and they can't stay away from it forever. So they, you know, they... They do the tourist thing. They make a, you know, they yep. they do the Disney version of their own past mm-hmm. in order to say you should find out about this. You come visit us. You should give us money. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Give us money. So you know, people they want to hear tourists want to hear a glamorized version of. It. Yeah, yeah. So that exactly. so they and, and if you don't have it, then you invent it. Same as any culture does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, but it has, they did it so well. And because they were so clothed off, you know, there was no way of disproving all these, all this mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's why it is now so hard to find the real accurate Story, sort yeah. of day. Oh, and wow. Because a lot of, even like the books and things written were based on the inaccuracies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. That's wild. Wow, Addie. Yeah. I also, learned so much. That was wild. That was so good. Thank you. I, hope I, I was taking notes while you were doing it so that I could like get like names to highlight and stuff for the episode notes so that everybody, you know, could could also see the words along with it. So, yeah, it's going to be awesome. I hope I didn't last too long because I know I was talking for a lot. No, I mean, like it's like you said, like it's an important part of history. Yeah. Like a lot of us have never heard of this and, it, you know, it it had a huge impact. And so this was really, really it's, great. It, 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 changed, it shaped the course of Japanese history for 300 yeah. years. And, and ultimately, I mean, it went even, I mean, even today, you know, it has its impact. I mean, the Japanese, the, the Japanese attempted to get so far away from the kind of the the Tokugawa, the shogunate type stuff, you know, this nas- this idea of, of arch nationalism and loyalty to the emperor didn't really work out so well in World War Two. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of mm-hmm. went to the other extreme a few decades later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they were so determined to get away from this stuff in the late 19th century that they accidentally kind of went a bit 
too, too far. far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Along the national, you know, nationalism. So, I mean, to yeah. be fair, they were not the only ones doing that. You know, Britain and Germany, America, you know, were doing a lot of that in the 19th, <laughs> at the turn of the 20th century as well. Hey, you know, Addie, I think we know a little bit <laughs> about <laughs> nationalism and the rise, <laughs> the scary rise of nationalism Ooh, over here. Oh yeah, so do we. <laughs> so, but yeah, so that's that is that was what's going on in Japan. Fifteen. Oh, yeah, fifteen hundreds odds. So <laughs> amazing. That, that was, was terrific. I, thank you thank so you much, so Addie. Much. Thank you for doing this for us. And uh, I know we're not done because I hear you have a little quiz for us. I do indeed. Now I must confess this quiz has not been written entirely by me, and the reason for that is that I thought I would reach out to some friends of mine who have a little group called the Trivia Writers Co-op which is a group of trivia hosts and writers who uh, get together mostly on Discord, really. Um, so sort of hosts, you know, who... It's, it's really a community of people who are in this... Who do, who do write a lot of quizzes, who have come together to share resources, to share ideas for questions and mm-hmm. help each other out and ultimately get more people, you know, make our own products better. Yeah, right. yeah. That's great. And make our quizzes better. So... I would say so many thanks to um, to the likes of um, Jason Borsum, Liquid Courage, Jeff at RMT Trivia, uh, Corey for Degree Entertainment. There's you know I know I'm not naming everybody off the top of my head, but there's a f- there's a, a few people. So thank you to everybody who has helped out with this quiz. But of course, some of the questions are my own. <laughs> um, and this now this quiz you'll find you'll be pleased to hear is on a bit of a lighter subject than the rather dark history one. Uh, since samurai, the word samurai means servant, uh, this is a quiz about fictional servants. Mm. Butlers and maids and those sorts. So, question one. Sharing his surname with a delicious brand of chocolate that puts anything made by Hershey to shame, who was the butler to Richie Rich? Question two. Listeners of a certain age may remember the Ask Jeeves search engine. You can ask questions rather than typing in words. Eventually, you realize that normal words work just as well, and that Google was better. Which English author created the original Jeeves, a valet to Bertie Wooster? Question 3. What kind of outlook on life would most fittingly be expressed by the robot housekeeper from the Jetsons? Question 4. Punnily named, like many characters in the show, Bentina Beakley was the name of the fictional maid on what 90s cartoon and its 2010s reboot? Question 5. Now with his own series on Epics starring Jack Bannon, who is the famous butler to a billionaire whose hobby is beating up the mentally ill and who is in no way whatsoever a superhero? Question 6. What was the fitting last name of Geoffrey, butler to the Banks family in the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Question 7. Which fictional second-in-command has a computer that, when switched on, shows a topless photo of his boss saying, Hello, name, you're quite good at turning me on. Question 8. While her employment history would suggest she was actually pretty terrible at her job, going from housekeeper to Peace Corps volunteer via half a dozen other jobs in just a few years, what motherly figure was so loved in her role that she was given her own spin-off after only a year, 
and went on to dominate TV ratings while helping to raise and mould the likes of Molly Ringwald and George Clooney. Question 9. Multiple choice. Which of these is a real character in the British show Downton Abbey? Is it A. Mr. Reese, B. Mr. Echt, or C. Mr. Bates? And question 10. He often has a very cunning plan, but most of them fail and he ends up getting killed at the end of each series. Nonetheless, which British sitcom character with a reptilian name, reduced from a prince in series 1 to the mere butler to a stupid prince regent in series 3, finishes his run as undisputed dictator of the UK, and potentially, eventually, as master of the entire universe? We'll give everybody about a minute to think about this, and then Addie will be back with our answers. I was feeling good at the beginning, but then it kind of fell apart for me, my dude. <laughs> it was hard. It's hard to get the pace of difficulty of this. No, no, it's totally fine. You know what? It's more interesting when um, I feel like it's more interesting for our listeners when I flounder. So, <laughs> so, so don't it's worry. You're providing. You'll get your nail, but it's <laughs> where you're providing a service. It's okay. It's yeah. okay. All right. All right. I feel good about like half of them, Lauren. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Okay. I'm interested to see what, how the listeners get on with this. I would, I would expect it's difficult to get all 10 of these. You need yeah. to really know your team. Yeah, exactly. All right. All right. Lay it on us. Okay. So, uh, question one was sharing his sardine for a delicious brand of chocolate that puts anything made by a hair. She's a shame. Who was the butler to Richie Rich? Lauren, I don't know. See, I, I was thinking about chocolate. Uh-huh. And so, um, I mean, everyone knows Hershey's is garbage. Yeah, Hershey's so is garbage. So I was thinking, um, the the first one that came to my mind was Cadbury. I also, that was the first one I thought of as well. Uh, so I think that will be our guest. Yeah, because I don't think his name is like Toblerone. <laughs> <laughs> or like Lint. Lint yeah. <laughs> Bar. <laughs> Yeah, it's, we'll it's, go with it's Cadbury. Cadbury. It's Cadbury. It is Cadbury. Well done. Woo! Yeah. I saw that name in a list, in a list and I thought, yeah, you know what? Perfect. <laughs> I can ask that question. <laughs> question number two. Listeners of a certain age may remember the Ask Jeeves search engine, but who created the original Jeeves? A valet to Bertie Wooster. 
Um, I am currently working my way through these books. That's P.G. Wodehouse. It absolutely is P.G. Wodehouse, yes. Those hold up. Can I tell you? I have definitely, I mean, they're written like the earliest one I think was written in like 1917. Mm-hmm. I have definitely laughed a lot, like LOL'd at these books. So they are pretty timeless as far as I'm concerned. Wow. Nice. Never read any, but <laughs> they're quite funny and light, like, you know, just easy reading. Uh, question three, what kind of outlook on life would most fittingly be expressed by the robot housekeeper from the Jetsons? That's Rosie. That is Rosie. <laughs> we all wish we had one. <laughs> Let's oh, yeah. be honest. It's yeah. very difficult. Well, I mean, most of us wish we have a robot housekeeper, but also Rosie outlook on life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Question four, punnily named, like many characters of the show, um, Bentina Beakley was the name of the fictional maid on which 90s cartoon and its reboot. Please, Julia. Life is like a hurricane <laughs> here in Duckburg. We know, that's a DuckTales. Absolutely, it's DuckTales. And I've seen so many good videos of that theme song superimposed on other people. Love oh, it. yeah, it fits so many things. Seriously does, Absolutely. <laughs> Question five. Um, now his own series on epics, the butler to a billionaire whose hobby is beating up the mentally ill and who absolutely should not be called a superhero. Is that is that Alfred? Like yes, Batman? it is Alfred. Okay, that's what I, I didn't realize he had his own show. Good for him. He has his own show on epics, yeah. Um, Good. He was the hero anyway. Absolutely, yeah. Batman is... Nuts. He, yeah, I, I will stand by that view. I will... <laughs> Apologies to any listeners who really like Batman, but and I mean I enjoy the films, but I mean he could yeah. do so much more to save Gotham by just <laughs> investing the money in schools and social yeah. services. <laughs> Address the root causes of crime, you know. Don't just go yeah. out in a costume. <laughs> I've heard a friend one of my friends has actually um describes Batman as copaganda. Oh yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Well, yeah, it's true. Like, I guess, I guess it doesn't make for a very interesting. <laughs> it doesn't make for a very interesting comic book if he's like setting up foundation. Today, we're gonna help the school district. Yeah. And then he goes. The time oh. was created. Yeah. It's... Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I'm gonna back some progressive candidates. <laughs> it's fine as long as you see Batman as the villain and not the hero. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, you know. It's yeah. Uh, question six. What was the fitting last name of Jeffrey Butler to the Banks family in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? But his last name was Butler. His last name was <laughs> Butler. What was the I... fitting last name of Jeffrey, comma, Butler? <laughs> this is what Liquid Courage calls a douchey trick question, yeah. which they do in every one of their shows, in which the answer is somewhere in the question. Yes. Uh, credit to Liquid Courage. I think it was Lucky Courage, or it was one of the trivia court guys <laughs> who came up with that one. But yes, his name is Jeffrey Butler. Mm. Uh, question seven. The fictional second-in-command whose computer, when switched on, was a topless photo of his boss saying, hello, you're quite good at turning me on. I put three question marks because I this does not ring any bells for me. It sounds Bond-esque, like cheeky, like British. But does it sound like Austin Powers-esque? Oh, that's see, yeah, maybe it's like it it comes full circle. 
I will say that you are way off. It is nothing like that. No. Then I don't have any I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I wrote down number two question mark. I don't know. This is actually Mr. Smithers from The Simpsons. Oh! oh. <laughs> he switches on his computer when Lisa is present and he sees a photo of Mr. Burns with his arms around himself, but clearly not with shirt on. <laughs> Hello, Smithers. You are quite good at turning me on. And he has to awkwardly turn to Lisa saying, yeah, you should probably ignore that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I don't remember that at all. That's so funny. That sounds right, though. Mr. Smithers is kind of a... He's a sub. He, I mean, know. he's the kind of guy who would have a topless photo of his own boss because yeah, he was, he was just, you know. <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh. Uh, question eight, which is a bit of a long one, but uh, the employment, the woman whose employment history would suggest she was quite bad at her job. She went from a housekeeper to a Peace Corps volunteer, but she was so loved in the role she got her own spin-off after only a year, and then went on to dominate TV ratings. Is it from the Facts of Life, Lauren? It is. Yes, it is. Oh, oh. Um, I've watched maybe mm, a total of fifteen I minutes draw of her. <laughs> yeah, she's got a very distinctive face and that, voice. Like, red bouffant. Yeah. Um, Facts of Life was the spinoff, or was oh. the show she was moved on to? They were, she was on a different show before that. Yeah. Shoot. I I don't remember her name to be honest. <sighs> Okay, so you had Blair and Tootie yeah. and Joe and Mrs. It was Mrs. Mrs. It is, it is Mrs. Something. Mrs. Yep. Something. This is great. Everybody loves it when we talk. <laughs> I love it. It would, it would be as fun if you got all ten calls. Her name is yeah, Charlotte a- something. Charlotte Ooh, Ray is her real name. So her no. fake name is her fake name. Her TV name is Mrs. Mrs. You take the good, you take the bad, you take the good, then you have the facts of life. You're right the about the actor as well. It is Sean Ray who plays the character. Damn, Jewel. You know, you see, it's it's definitely like this is very. You're doing a classic Lauren where I know all the information yeah. around the right answer. Yeah. Would it help if I told you the other show? I don't know if it would or not. Yeah, what's the other show? Different Strokes. <sighs> Mrs. <laughs> it's a good thing you're a baby still can awake. I draw her. <laughs> That's. <laughs> So Julia can can give an accurate description, witness description of of her. She knows the name of the actress who plays her. Now she knows both of the TV shows that she was on. It's gonna kill me when you say it. When you say it, Addie. There's- there you go. See, you just- <laughs> I don't, I've never seen the show, so I don't know. What that's be. But yeah, Lauren literally drew a picture of the characters. Do you want? I don't. I can't. Do you want to give up, Jewel? <laughs> I never want to give up, but we I should know, for the sake of everybody else. Everybody's screaming it at us. It's Mrs. Garrett. Mrs. Garrett. Damn it. G. Mrs. G. I was I on the G, there. but I couldn't get there. Okay. Honestly, if you said Mrs. G, I would have given it because <laughs> in, in her Wikipedia article, she is no, it's listed, it lists Mrs. G as an alias. <laughs> <laughs> a very good alias. Good alias. As a, li- as a list of the Fact of Life characters. Um, yeah, start with different strokes and was... Everything else about the character you you got. <laughs> <laughs> you got all the rest of that. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um 
Number nine, the multiple choice. So which of these is a real character in the show Downton Abbey? Mr. Reese, Mr. X, or Mr. Bates? That's <sighs> that is Mr. Bates. Bates. That is Mr. Bates, yes. Who I don't <laughs> believe ever went by the title Master on the show. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was like dying. It was hanging there, you know? Like it, people were dying to, dying to do it. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, yep, he was the Valot introduced in the first episode um, of the show. And question 10. He often has a very cunning plan. Most of them fail and he gets killed at the end of each series. But which British sitcom character, Ray Reptilian name, Reduced from a prince in series one to the mere butler to a stupid prince regent in series three, finishes as undisputed dictator of the UK, and if you believe certain of the spin-offs, master of the universe. I just got this. Like, it literally just hit me. I got it oh, from wow. Reptilian. What'd you say, Joel? I got it from Reptilian. What are you- See, I just got it from Reptilian. Yeah, me uh, too. Is it Blackadder? Black it is Blackadder. Absolutely. Edmund Blackadder. I thought it was good to, to have the clue to the actual name itself. Um, yeah, Ed, Edmund Blackadder, who at the end of the first series, the prince and he accidentally drinks poison. At the se- end of the second series, he's murdered. At the end of the first series, he actually becomes king, although it looks like the king he becomes was childless, because it looks like he effectively becomes George IV, who died childless. Um, he dies at the end of World War One in the fourth series, but in Blackadder back and forth, he alters time to make himself a prime minister and then abolishes parliament so that he gets to stay in the role forever. <laughs> Can I tell you something about your TV over there? So <laughs> here's the thing. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love it. Mm-hmm. It's great. Your your comedy can be Oh my God, the panel shows. The panel shows are a thousand kisses to the sky. Don't Don't get me wrong. But sometimes, like your Doctor's Who, like your Black's Adder, can be impenetrable dwar- in a way. Dwarf Reds. Yeah, your Reds, your Reds Dwarves can be impenetrable in a way that is so um, opaque that I I could not even begin to try and, and understand it. And that's fine. It's not for me. I don't have to. And he did a delightful it's- summary. It's for yeah, us, you're also so period. I mean, I was actually literally, I was actually watching Red Dwarf today, and like there were references to like British actors from like from when the show, like when those early series were made, like from the eighties and nineties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I was I was watching Red Dwarf like the, earlier on today, and it was an earlier episode, and there were references to like older actors who hadn't been on TV in decades. And it's like. This is would only be this is only relevant at that time, and even yeah. British people nowadays would not have heard of these people. No, <laughs> it's crazy. Like that, you have the continuity that you guys are so yep. dedicated to is astounding to me. Like it's incredible. So you know, for, I guess what I'm trying to say is kudos. <laughs> There's a great joke on The Good Place where like Tahani's talking about like one of yes. her favorite show, one of her favorite British shows. She was like, it was on for 18 years. They did almost 31 episodes. And I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like every series is like two episodes, three episodes, and then they take a nice long break. <laughs> there's one I need to look up. Hang on. Um. The Last of the Summer Wine is a notorious one because that ran on for like 40 years, something like that. Let's see if it lists how many episodes. But how many... Yeah, um, 
Okay, there were 295 episodes, but that is over the course of about 40 years. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um, <laughs> the first episode was on... was in 1983, and the last was in 2010. <laughs> <laughs> 300 episodes in that length of time <laughs> is not that much. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. But so, Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, that was Enough. my quiz. That was terrific. Oh my gosh, thank Addie, you, Addie. Thank you so much for staying up super late and for all of your terrific knowledge about the samurai. And we've learned so much. And I had such a fun time with that quiz because you know yeah. I love a TV question. Love TV questions. It's the best. Thank you so much. I've had an absolutely amazing time. Um, it's been the absolute best. Thank you so much for for letting me do this. You guys are awesome. It's fantastic to talk to you, to hang out with you. This yeah. I love listening to the show and and actually recording it is, is even better. It's oh, amazing. Thank you That's so much, Addie. Do you have thank anything you. else to plug? Yeah, do you have anything to plug? Um not really at the moment. Uh, okay. I will however shout out my online streaming te- quiz team who have been keeping me sane for this last year of doing a lot of my mm-hmm. online stream quizzes with no better social distancing than the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's what we call ourselves. We do the online quiz league. We do lots of different quizzes. Um, and if you are a quiz host, then yeah, um, let one of us know. We'll get in touch with you about the trivia co-op. Uh, it's a fantastic resource. They are fantastic people. Um and yeah, keep listening to and supporting misinformation. It's it's absolutely <laughs> fantastic show. You guys are great. Thanks. That's sweet. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much again, Addie. So thank you. Yeah, for uh for Addie and for, for Lauren. Uh, I think I think we're gonna wrap it up and uh we'll catch you next time. Thanks guys. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>